This is Alex Pearson. We're talking about Canadian democracy. We're talking about Canadian sovereignty. Um, and, and we can't just leave this to, you know, partisanship. We can't just expect politicians to uh, investigate themselves. I mean, this is a, a normal thing. We would want something independent to happen here. You would think, but that is not going to happen. Good morning to you, Alex Pearson, with you on this Wednesday. Yes, it is a Wednesday, March 1st, kicking off a brand new month as we edge closer to spring and, of course, spring break for a lot of uh, people in this uh, province. And here we go again. One day we won't talk about the story, right? But no, we're right in the middle of this juicy scandal in the latest chapter of the uh, nothing-to-see-here scandal. In today's episode, the Liberals will declare there was no interference because we investigated ourselves, right? Yeah, I only wish this was as entertaining as the YNR, but uh, it is not, because it's simply not to be believed. But we got this report released by the tax force that um, was set up by the Liberals to monitor election interference. They'll tell you it's one of their tools that's keeping our democracy safe and uh, safe from the kinds of allegations that the Liberals are now denying happened in the last two elections. But this report comes a year after the election and declares there was no interference that threatened the 2021 vote. But there were attempts to interfere in the election that didn't meet the threshold the panel of experts tax, you know, tasked themselves while monitoring all these risks. Well, what is the ta- what, what, what's the threshold that they put forward for themselves? Like, what is it? One, two writings being skewed? Is that cool? None? Just a little bit of misinformation? Some bullying of voters? Like, what is this threshold to which they uh, judged their findings on? We have no idea. And context matters. But because this panel that did this report doesn't have a clear mandate of what it is actually looking at, because it's never done it before, they can't really explain how they came to their conclusions. So we don't actually have any context to know if there was interference or not. They cite things like social media and media as being a big problem where countries like China, Iran, and Russia will use hostile state actors as a tool for foreign interference. Well, okay, we know that. That's not new. We didn't need a report to tell us that. What we need to know is what this report won't tell us because it does not address the, suspe- you know, the very specific current concerns of disappearance that the uh, O'Toole campaign raised. Remember, they raised concerns about several ridings that they felt were having uh, interference campaigns run in, and those ridings ended up going liberal. The report does not address the vast campaign of foreign interference, including this clandestine network of at least 11 federal candidates running in 2019. It does not address these allegations. Beijing used an extensive network of community groups to hide money between Chinese officials and an election of interference network. It doesn't address allegations. CSIS issued a warning to Trudeau that Chinese agents were helping candidates run in the election. Is no one curious about all the cash for access between Justin Trudeau and Chinese donors and the fact that China made clear they wanted him to become prime minister? Does no one want to get to the bottom of that? Because the final report is put together by the same person who once upon a time was the CEO of the Trudeau Foundation. 
and that was from 2014 to 2018. We're talking about the same period of time when the Trudeau Foundation saw donations spike from $53 million to almost $700 million, thanks to all these new Chinese donors. So this guy writing the report may be the nicest guy in the world and may be the most competent guy in the world, but the optics are simply awful. It just doesn't look good. You know, the investigation only looked at elections, didn't bother to look at the nominations, which apparently China also liked to interfere with, according to CSIS. So the liberals are going to use this report and say, look, this is proof. We've got all these tools in place. We've all, you know, investigated all these allegations. But the reality is this is political theater. The government has investigated itself. And they hope, I guess, if they repeat it often enough and loud enough and, well, you know, the rest... Because the calls for this investigation are coming every single day. And the only way you hold the confidence of Canadians is by doing something independent. But the Liberals have absolutely no intentions of doing that. After this report was uh, tabled, they were like, yeah, no, we're good. We're good. See, we didn't do anything. But eventually this is going to be forced on them. And I guess they've made clear that democracy is the hill they're going to die on. But Canadians aren't buying this. You guys aren't buying this. We're not buying it. You know, and they cannot say there's no interference unless there has been an actual investigation by Elections Canada or the Elections Commission. That hasn't happened. And I guess uh, a lot of people liken this to the sponsorship scandal, which if you were around, that was the last time uh, really that the Liberals just could not escape the stench of corruption. And, and, and it ultimately would be this final straw for Jean Chrétien lead to Paul Martin, but it was ugly. And so a lot of people are now looking at this particular scandal and saying, this is even worse. And you are tuning in. Angus Reid, um, and we'll talk with um, with the pollster who did these numbers. It's one of those early kind of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a flash poll, but it's definitely uh, the earliest of the polls that we're going to start seeing on this issue. And don't forget, this, this poll comes before we learned of Sam Cooper's latest, where uh, CSIS was said to have gone to the prime minister and warned him about a particular candidate who's now a, an MP. But this this polling comes out early. But it's this, oh, you know, a majority, fifty two percent of us are are tuned in. A majority, two in three, across all political lines, believe that China interfered in our elections. Fifty three percent call it a serious threat. But here's where some of the numbers get interesting, because this is not, not really necessarily being seen through a partisan lens. It's like when it comes to this, Canadians are not seeing it as a, there will be the syncophants, but there's, there's a, a really clear illustration that Canadian, when it comes to this issue of democracy, there's no time for it. Because when you ask the question, is the Trudeau government doing enough to protect our security and defense, 64% of Canadians say, nope, not doing enough. And 70% believe that Trudeau is afraid to stand up to China. So those are some of the earliest numbers. But to those saying, well, people don't really care about this, they do. Canadians are, in fact, watching. They don't like what they're seeing. And so now it's kind of a waiting game. When will the government be forced to make a move? They think they can kind of stall this thing out, rag the puck, and maybe it'll just kind of all go away. But it's not going to go away. And if it does, I think that just speaks volumes, speaks volumes about where we are. 
you know, there are some scandals that deserve answers and, and have to rise above partisan politics. I don't know anymore if this does. I mean, to me, it's just straight up. This resignation should have already happened. Resignation should have happened for a lot of things already, but it never just seems to. But at what point is it a scandal you just can't ignore? I think this one has the legs, certainly, because there are a lot of people who normally would uh, come to the defense and not even they, they can't even polish this turd, right? They just can't do it. It's a tough one. We will dive into this. We've got a really busy show today. There's tons of uh, talkables, so we're going to get to them. But we'll kick things off with this because, look, this story's not going away. It shouldn't go away. It should not go away. And if it does, shame on us for letting it. Canada doesn't have adequate protections uh, in place to protect itself from this type of activity. It doesn't have a foreign agent registry where someone who is working on behalf of a foreign government has to declare that interest. Uh, it doesn't have foreign interference laws like Australia has. And so it's particularly vulnerable to this. And from what we've seen from the reporting from 2019 to 2021, things are getting worse. And if we don't solve this before we go into another election, uh, I'm very worried about how that's going to go. That's a fellow named Dennis Molinero, who's a former national security analyst once upon a time with the federal government. And, um, you know, he pointed out that this is not new for our enemies, but neither is our apathy to take any actual stops, you know, steps to do anything about it. And, you know, the prime minister's making claims it was just a little bit of interference. It didn't change the election results. The only answer he should have been giving is that no amount of interference is okay at all. And Trudeau really can't show the damage caused because Elections Canada, nor the police, nor the commission, nor anybody else have actually investigated because espionage and interference are very difficult to investigate. And CSIS has been warning China, you know, the threat is growing here. Uh, but we don't have great laws on the books to go after it. And during testimony in 2022 at a House Affairs Committee, CSIS said, look, we don't even have the proper surveillance tools. Like our policy on investigating this stuff and our China policy has not been updated since 1984. So whatever these tools are that Trudeau's got, um, maybe he can give them to CSIS because they don't even have the right tools to go after this threat. Let me bring in Charles Burton, senior fellow over at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, also a former counselor over at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. Charles, great to have you. Good to speak with you, Alex. You've certainly been warning about this for a whole long time. We've had many, many, many conversations about this. And so we seem to be kind of at this impasse now where it's starting to dribble out and the, the allegations are pretty damning. Let me ask your thoughts with uh, CSIS coming forward with the warnings. How significant do you think this is? Well, you know, I agree with you. It, it seems like I'm less of a conspiracy theorist fringe case than uh, people might have thought because CSIS is <laughs> able to give real evidence that, you know, what we've been talking about on the radio, as you say, for some years is in fact happening. And and it is true that nothing is going on to deal with it. I mean, you know, the, the thing is that some of the stuff is just clearly criminal activity. This kickback scheme that the Chinese uh, embassy or 
I don't know whether they did it through one of those police stations, the Confucius Institute or some friend mm-hmm. organization, but the idea that, you know, the Chinese government would get people to donate money to political campaigns and then you bring in your tax receipt and they reimburse you for the amount that, you know, the tax dollars of Charles Burton and Alex Pearson have not subsidized. Mm-hmm. That I mean, that's pure and simple fraud and everybody who was involved in this scheme should, you know, should be brought up before a court of law. And so, you know, I mean, some of it's complicated and, and ambiguous about what's appropriate for an embassy to do and what can we do about it. But some of it is just, you know, completely open and shut um, illegal activity that that one does not understand has not been pursued. You know, like where it's, who knew what, when did they know it, and how come they didn't do anything about it? These are all the questions I think Canadians deserve an answer to. Deserve, but I'm not sure we're going to get it. We, we've got this uh, particular report done by uh, Ro- uh, Morris Rosenberg, who headed up uh, at one point the Trudeau Foundation, and I, he might be the my, most decent person in the world, uh, Charles, but the Trudeau Foundation, which has been reported on by both Sam Cooper and Rob Fife, I mean, there was a period of time when Justin Trudeau got elected first as leader, where the money in that foundation was at $53 million, and then it spiked up over a few years in a very quick amount of time to almost $700 million. Many of those giving money were said to be of Chinese, you know, background. Um, you know, money going back when maybe they put up a statue of, uh, of his father, all these things. And then this is the same guy who's tabling this report about the fact that there was no interference, but they don't even, they don't even have a mandate and they don't have a threshold. Like, I don't even know what they base the report on. We're just supposed to say, okay, th- th- it didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, this is the report about how it's okay that we didn't do anything about the elections, you know, a uh, report by a former deputy minister commenting on how effective uh, other deputy ministers have been in this matter and suggesting a few changes such as, well, you know, the political party said it was too far to go to, to our secure room outside of town, so let's put it inside, you know, the center of town next time or this other sort of nonsense. I mean, the thing is that uh, you know, the Trudeau Foundation thing, something that we had been aware of before, which is that Zhang Bin, the, the man who coordinated the donation to the Trudeau Foundation, which we read in the Globe and Mail today, was not just about, you know, one aspect was not just about putting up a statue of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, but he wanted to have a statue of Pierre Elliott Trudeau with Chairman Mao next to him. And, yeah. You know, <laughs> But in any event, I mean, the thing is, and I, and I talked about this before, this Jiang Bin is a member of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference National Committee, which is the lead organization for United Front work. In other words, yeah, yeah. trying to influence uh, foreign government's policy towards China. But what we hear in the thesis report was it's even worse, because I might have sort of said, uh, this doesn't look too good to me that someone who holds this position of the Chinese government has great warm feelings towards Mr. Trudeau and wants to donate money. But now we hear that, in fact, CSIS picked up a telephone call where the Chinese consulate assured Mr. Zhang that all the money would be reimbursed to him by the government of China. So that puts a, a, a whole new complexion on the matter, that it's really the government of China that is transferring resources to something that, uh, you know, Mr. Trudeau would be influenced by. Um, and one cannot help but feel that that was with a view to trying to to influence him in his relationship with China. I mean, you know, it just the whole thing just uh, just is getting worse and worse and worse. And one really wonders, um, you know, if if the if that large number of people that were donating 
the money to Mr. Trudeau at these events that were picked up, not because Trudeau had put them on his agenda. Those were all listed as private meetings, but because the Chinese domestic newspapers in their overseas Chinese work department published pictures of Mr. Trudeau Mm -hmm. with Mr. Zhang and all the others. The question is, were they also part of the scam where they gave the money, got the tax receipt, and then the Chinese government reimbursed them? So in other words, is it possible that you know, for a foreign government's money was donated to Mr. Trudeau um, through proxies. You know, and that that's really pay for play. you have to yeah. resign kind of stuff, right? I mean, this is this is just beyond, you know, if it's Canadian citizens pay for playing, fine. If it's the Chinese government mm. taking Chinese government resources and transferring them to the political campaign of a senior, you know, of a Canadian prime ministerial candidate, I mean, that... That that's uh, you've got to resign kind of kind of well, behavior. It's not it's not like, oh, it was just, uh, you know, one of those things. And and uh, if if you if you bring it up, you're you're going to be accused of being racist towards all people, all ethnic Chinese people in Canada, which is just, you know, completely beyond it's the nonsense. Pale. It doesn't make any sense at all. So. What's your feeling then, Charles? Because uh, Trudeau has been doing anything not to uh, to answer the questions, and he's deflecting about this being racism or it's just uh, wrong reporting. But what is the concern about retaliation from China? Because I don't think they're probably very happy right now. Um, you know, like they have, they had a good gig, and if he screws this up, I don't think they're very happy. But on the other side of this, do you think there's any way? I think ultimately he'll be forced to have some kind of of, of inquiry or something. Uh, but where do you see the next chapter of this? Well, you know, he right now he's saying, well, let's do it in the in the procedure and House Affairs Committee that has a foreign election influence study. I I gave some evidence to that committee a couple of meetings ago. But the bottom line here, and I and I, I said it in my evidence, is that unless we're able to actually get the information from CETA, uh, from CSIS about what's going on, then the parliamentarians really have no basis to know, you know, what what laws should be implemented or what areas of Canadian government policy have not been acted on. And in the last meeting of that committee, the Liberals and the NDP got together and voted down a a motion to um, require that the government's, that the documents be given to the committee, albeit redacted by the clerk, by the law clerk who has the requisite security clearance. So, you know, they're meeting again today, three to five. They've called in a lot of these senior uh, global affairs and CSIS people. And my guess is that we'll get the same thing, which is, yes, it's a very serious problem. Yes, we're acting on it, although, no, we can't give you any details because these are operational matters that we have to keep confidential. Well, that doesn't get them very far in getting to the bottom of it. So, you know, ideally, a public inquiry headed by a distinguished jurist who would have full access to absolutely everything, in other words, a full security clearance, and the ability to compel anybody to come and Mm -hmm. ask questions under oath would be perfect. Uh, you know, that's my suggestion. Uh, uh, believe it when you see it. If if uh, if uh, if that does happen, um, you know, let's crack out the champagne next time we're on the program together. Absolutely, hundred percent. I will buy, no problem, uh, because I don't think that moment's <laughs> coming. But I but I hope I'm wrong. Charles, we'll talk again. I very much appreciate your time on this. Thank you. Great to speak with you. That is uh, Charles Burton, who has been warning about this for a good long time. So. Here we are in this next chapter. So we'll just wait for the other uh, shoe to drop, I guess, whenever that happens. On the other side of this, we'll talk about the, um, I don't, I mean, you might be stuck in it right now down on Lakeshore. You just can't move anywhere. 
or maybe you're stuck on Adelaide or uh, Queen Street's about to shut down. I mean, there's just such congestion and it's going to be here for a very long time, but it's having a huge impact on the city with a lot of people saying, I'm not just, I just can't do it anymore. So can we mitigate any of this? We'll talk with uh, how this is impacting a lot of businesses that just can't, can't, can't survive these shutdowns anymore. So we'll do that in just a second. Stay with us here on 640 Toronto. Stuck in traffic? Probably. I don't need to tell you how congested it is in the city of Toronto. Uh, even with less people coming into the core, it is just a mess. And we've got a bunch of street closures. I mean, you're probably uh, stuck in one of them. I mean, we've got the uh, Adelaide closure for water main issues. Uh, Queen Street's closing in May because they're going to lay down tracks, and they're looking at 20 months for that. And all this, of course, for the Ontario line. And then you've got the whole refurbishment of the Gardner which has closed off a bunch of ramps and intersections, and that whole stretch has caused such mayhem with um, fixes to gas pipelines and all the rest of it. I mean, we're looking at work along the Gardner, along that lakeshore stretch, until 2030. So if, you're, if this is what you're dealing with now, this is going to be around for seven more years, <laughs> plus another seven because they'll be late. But if you've got a business in the area, like what are you going to do? And if you have to do business area, like you've got to deliver people What's the point? You know, let me ask someone that's uh, impacting directly, Christine Hubbard, operations manager over at Beck Taxi. Good to have you, Christine. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, um, I, I would hate to be. I, I, there's oftentimes when I drive and drive, I'm like, I'd hate to be a cab driver. I don't know how they deal with this kind of stuff. But like Toronto is very tough to drive a cab in. Really, really tough. And especially when you get into the downtown core, it's just, it's it's become kind of a no holds barred scenario. You you almost feel like you're fighting for your life down there. Do you remember it? I mean, it's always been bad, but do you remember it being this bad in the last few years? No, absolutely not. It's it's worse than ever. And I'd say you know just look at traffic on a Google map. You know, it used mm. to be that you might see some red lines on the main roads. Now they're just black. It's you just you're not moving. So what is the deal with, with the Lakeshore? Uh, you know, it was warned it was coming, but what, what, it, what is it, how is it impacting business? Well, you know, I, I actually just feel horrible for any businesses along the Lakeshore. I mean, um, on the one hand, during the pandemic, I think that they were really helped out by the idea of, you know, the food delivery, obviously stay at home and, mm-hmm. and have everything delivered. But now, um, you know, people just aren't trying to go to these restaurants at all because of, a, the number of food delivery drivers, I think, that are that are just stopped, stopping traffic, but also the fact that um, it's just too hard to get down there. I mean, taxi drivers are just staying away because their options are um, try to get someone and they'll wait and be angry when they get in the car, um, be without a fare and get stuck in the traffic and, and, and you can't book on, on anything because you're stuck or you've got someone in the back seat, you know, essentially blaming you for not you know, finding a better route, but there just isn't one. So it's kind of a no win uh, on the so lake. Right Sorry, are your cabs just like, no, not doing it? It's not, it wouldn't be worth their while at this point. It's just absolutely not worth their while. And I, I think, you know, they are going down there. It's not that, you know, um, if, if there's someone who needs to get down to the lakeshore, for example, they're going to take you. 
but they're not hanging around waiting for someone yeah. well, you can't. You know, you're not you're not trying to pick up fares. No one's down there flagging because the cars just aren't moving. I mean, if I'm, uh, you know, and it just makes it especially difficult too for people who um, may need that door to door service and can't sort of walk somewhere to try to find a better place sure. to flag. I mean, it's, it's it, our most vulnerable people who need, you know, for example, wheelchair accessible yeah. service are the ones who are suffering the most. Yes, yeah, certainly. And there's a lot of people who don't want to try transit right now because they're terrified of dying. So they're jumping into cabs. But if you can't get where you're going, uh, what's the point? The other side of this right. is the fact that Adelaide and, and Adelaide's been shut for a while, but you've got Queen Street, which could be a 20 month shutdown. Uh, coming in May. Those are two massive major arteries on top of all of this. And so how, what's the hit going to be? Well, I just think, you know, it was it was awful. I went to a to one Toronto Maple Leafs game, for example, um, this year, and no one made it in time for, for the Oh, no, no, yeah. And yeah, you, yeah. Sort of, you know, we were on our way down. I mean, certainly taxi, and you, there, there are no alternatives alternates there are no alternate routes and i think the impact is huge people are just not going to try um you know and and for taxi drivers too it's just to sit there idling in traffic making no money wasting your gas wasting your time it's just it's just not worth it and you know you can ask a taxi driver and they may come up with with different intersections downtown but you know what's the worst place to go you know mm, bay and university it, they'll, they'll say everywhere they'll just you, you'll yeah. you'll hear from every angle that whole area is a. I I was always down there at that area. I will not go south of Bloor now. I just won't. I've changed all my habits because it is so impossible to get anywhere, you know, quickly. Let alone within a couple of hours. It's just. It's not worth it. So I, I hear you. Having said that, what has the city? I mean, I know that you deal with the city a lot. Certainly, you have uh, a lot of challenges for cabbies dealing with rideshare and all those issues. Has yeah. the city given you guys any mitigation or any kind of planning as to like how they're going to mitigate this? No, no. I mean, I think you know. That if I ever got a call from anyone at the city who had any interest in what's going on um, when it comes to our business or, or, frankly, you know, taxis or transportation or traffic flow, uh, you know, I might pass out. I've never, <laughs> in all of my years of working in this business, have we ever had someone from the city reach out and say, hey, do you have any suggestions or any kind of consultation? Um, you know, it, it's it's baffling. Albeit, you know, it is an issue because I know that there has been a, a, a little bit of an uptip, uptick in traffic with people trying to look for alternative traffic, um, you know, or, or uh, transportation because the TTC is just not where they want to go right now. And so I just don't know. And I'd, I'd like to see another plan as to what they actually think all these uh, street closures, how long they're going to last, because I don't buy for a second that uh, Queen Street will only be closed for a short duration. I certainly don't believe that uh, Lakeshore will be delivered on time because we've got the proof of every other construction project to look at. Well, and I think it just, you know, in my experience working with the city as as much as I, you know, can't hardly handle having to speak to anyone down there, but I just find that, you know, the ones who are working on Adelaide are not communicating with the ones who are working on the Queen Street project. And, you know, you just find that, does anyone know that these are going to be happening at the same time? I mean, we can't even have a St. Patrick's Day parade before St. Patrick's Day. So, I mean, I, I you know, I don't think that. I, I just find it really, really difficult to imagine that there's any real planning, any holistic planning going into any of this. 
Yeah. Uh, just before I let you go, I wanted to kind of freshen up a story because we had chatted a couple of months ago on delivery service. You and um, St. Louis, uh, it's wings. Uh, you guys were chatting about partnering up for food um, delivery. Did you guys get that rectified? or boo- boo- Was it booze or food? I can't remember now. So I think it was mostly around the food, but it was food. Okay. Um, yeah. brought up because of the idea that the LCBO or Uber was going to be yes. able to deliver for the LCBO. So I guess it was both things. And so yeah. we have set um, the bistro up with an account. She's ready to go. Oh, good. So it's just, a, you know, I think this weather has been interesting. So in, in downtown, I think Lakeshore is a perfect example between the traffic and these sort of major snowstorms that always seem to happen on a Friday. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think restaurants and small businesses are really uh, being hit hard by by sort of a combination of things that are going on. And, and the bistro is one of them. But, um, you know, she's got her account ready. She's ready to start the, the service. And it's just a matter of how she's going to um, connect uh, her clients with her staff to get the delivery going. Yeah, we're talking bistro on Avenue. If you're uh, a lover of right. chicken wings, and uh, they, she, you know, she's really giving a push to get this going. And so you are then offering this service. So, so what can Absolutely. people then get with you guys? So we, uh, when the pandemic started, and we've actually for decades have delivered food uh, for restaurants, and you can have your order delivered by taxi anytime, and we do it dozens of times a day. Um, you go to the Beck app, package delivery enter the name of the restaurant that it's picking up from, where it's going. The expectation is you've already paid for the food order when when the driver is sent, picks it up and drops it off to you and you're paying the taxi fare. Um, you know, there there are flat fees, you know, for the first three kilometers. And generally, I expect that most people are ordering from within about three kilometers of their homes. You're paying 10 bucks for delivery and a restaurant can decide if they want to split that with you or get involved in that, in that cost because they're saving, you know, the 30% they would otherwise give to the ordering platform, uh, you know, on the cost of the food. Yeah, anything to uh, support and uh, get the get the money in the till for these uh, small businesses because they have just been walloped. All right, Christine, thanks so much. I'm sure we'll talk thanks, again. Sarah. I appreciate that. Have a great day. That is uh, Christine Hubbard uh, with Beck's uh, operations manager over at Beck Taxi. So, yeah, it's not going to be a pleasant summer in the city. It's not. It's just going to be gridlock everywhere. And that does end the show. Thank you, Mr. Corey Manuel. I thank you, Ms. Heather Purden. I thank the team. I'm Alex Pearson. This is 640 Tour. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.